0: Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host for today, Stephen, and I'll be speaking with Professor Hajin Kim from the University of Chicago Law School. Professor Kim is an assistant professor of law. She received her BA in economics from Harvard, her JD from Stanford Law School, and her PhD from Stanford's Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. Before attending Stanford, she worked for the Boston Consulting Group, clerked for Judge Paul Watford of the US Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and also clerked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her work examines how moral and social influence can shape environmental regulation and firm behavior. Professor Kim is here today to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Kim. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. This sounds like such a great program.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you on. Um, First, uh, could you just please uh, tell us what your position is at UChicago and how would you describe, you know, your research interests and, and what you teach uh, to a layperson outside of that field?
1: Sure. So I'm an assistant law professor. So I'm at the law school and my research interests, um, I guess, in terms of outcomes, I'm very interested in environmental regulation and uh, just how we can better protect the environment. And I, I take a kind of unusual approach to that because I consider not just, you know, the traditional governmental tools we think of, you know, pollution taxes, command and control regulation, those types of things, but also market responses. We know now, for example, there's been a huge rise in like investor and consumer and employee push for corporations to do more and to care more outside just, uh, you know, shareholder profits. And so that's, that's a big part of what I study. So my training is in social psychology, and so I take that that those methods and that lens to to my work.
0: Okay, very interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Again, you know, just to sort of set the scene, um, could you just give us an overview of your career path, um, beginning in college uh, to where you are now? Um, yeah. Well, what what have you done? Um, you know, what institutions have have you been a part of?
1: Sure. Uh, so when I went to college, I fell in love with economics, and so I was an economics major. I loved Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, and so mostly focused on issues of trade um, my parents are immigrants and so I was especially interested in in trade kind of from an immigrant perspective um, and so that's what I did my senior thesis on immediately after college I went to Korea where my parents are from um, and I worked for a uh, Korea's first venture backed startup um, for half a year and then I actually just this is like my gap year so I took Mandarin lessons in Korea uh, which was fantastic because I have you know I took some Korean classes in college but I'm not I am by no means a native speaker. I, I can get by, but that's about it. And so I learned all the sort of grammar rules, in, like what, what grammar words were in Korean so that I could learn Mandarin. So that was awesome. And then I went and I worked for BCG, which is a management consulting firm in Chicago, actually. Uh, my, my then boyfriend, now husband, was at U- UFC law school at the time, actually. Um, so I worked at BCG for three years and he was in law school. And then I sat in on one of the USC law classes, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of had this environmental awakening while I was working at BCG and decided I really wanted to work on environmental issues, didn't know how, and I sat in on one of his law school classes with um, Saul Levmore and just fell in love with uh, law. And so I ended up applying to law school. I went to Stanford um, and started my JD. In my first year, I decided this is fantastic. I love law school, but also I want to do research. And so mm-hmm. I applied in my first year to do a joint PhD. Miraculously, they took me. <laughs> um, and so I um, joined the, uh, the PhD program in the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. Um, so that's a whole math pool. We call it EIPER. The <laughs> the basic point is you take two disciplines. So my disciplines were essentially social psychology and law or social psychology and policy, and you use them to look at particular issues that you care about. Um, so this awesome, fantastic, really free-ranging um, intellectual experience. Um, so I started my first two years of the PhD concurrently with my last two years of the law degree. And then once I finished the law degree and my first two years of the PhD, I left my PhD for a year to, uh, to clerk on the Ninth Circuit for Judge Watford in Pasadena. Um, it's basically the coolest job you can have as a young lawyer. Um, <laughs> and then I finished that clerkship and went back for a year to my PhD. And then I left my PhD again for another year to clerk for Justice Ginsburg at the Supreme Court, which was an amazing year. I mean, really depressing in some ways, but Mm. also amazing. And then I came back and finished my PhD. And after I finished my PhD, I was so lucky to join the faculty here. So that's that's my career.
0: Okay. Wow. Um, That's a whole lot that we covered and that you covered in just a few minutes there. Um, (laughs) But one question going way back is um, before all this, when you were a kid, maybe like middle or high school years. Um, What were your interests then? And and what did you think at that point you were going to end up doing?
1: Oh, I had no idea. I mean, (laughs) I kind of, I loved school. So I always thought maybe I would do some, I I didn't really know what being a professor was, but I thought maybe I will do something like a professor because I just love being in school. I wrote on my college applications that I was going to be a history major because I I knew what history was and I didn't know what a lot of the other subjects were. But <laughs> I could have very easily been an engineering major, or I just I had no I just really had no idea.
0: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. You know, a- as you were honing in on uh, this area, who were some people who influenced and and supported you? Um. In terms of your academic journey, like who are some people who have who've really been there to support you?
1: Yeah. You know, it's hard to, there's so many people that I don't know even where to begin. So in college, I was an economics major because I fell in love with economics. But the reason I fell in love with economics is because I had this uh, amazing, I think everyone all everyone else calls them TAs, but we call them TFs. She And she taught most of my class. And she Katie Kerr, I, I will never forget her because she was so brilliant. And she made all the topics so accessible and so interesting that I really wanted to study economics. And I remember sitting down with her and asking for advice, like, should I study this? I like it, but I don't know. Like, maybe I should do some of the other things that allow for a broader reach. And she was just like, well, you love it. Why not just try it? And so she was a big influence. My professors in law school and my advisors in my PhD program were, you know, I just got so lucky. I had the most wonderful people, mentors in both capacities supporting me. Some of my law school professors were also my advisors and some of my law school professors you know, some of them were, are just friends now who continue, like, even in law school, I would ask them, Oh, I don't know what, to, what to do with this problem I'm having with my family or anything. And they would just be so generous with their time and helpful and helping me think through things. So both personally and professionally, I think, um, they've been incredibly helpful. My judge, Judge Watford, um, who I clerked for in the, in Pasadena has always been incredibly supportive and somebody I can turn to anytime I have questions, um, or want to ask advice. I asked some advice questions of Justice Ginsburg, Um, but you know, I felt it was a little harder to ask her questions because I didn't want to bother her. I knew she was so, <laughs> so, so busy. I mean, Judge Watford is also extremely busy. She's not, she was not unapproachable, but I just didn't want to be taking up her time. So yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I feel very lucky that I've had so many wonderful influences in my career.
0: That's that's great to hear. Um, you mentioned uh, your your sort of gap year also. Um how do you think? Your experiences abroad affected uh, your approach to law and, and to the kinds of questions that you study now.
1: It's a good question. So I studied abroad in Chile, um, and then I did my gap year in Korea. Um, at least my study abroad in Chile was much more informative for my undergraduate work because I was so interested in in trade, and Chile had just Chile and South Korea had just completed the Chile South Korea Free Trade Agreement, and so. I I went there and sort of saw how that did bring many more Koreans into Santiago and and um, changed the sort of immigrant experience there. I, I I can tell you the really loose sort of long story, which is, um, so this is my environmental awakening. It happened in Korea.
0: Yeah, so, I'd love to hear about that.
1: Okay, so the summer after my first year of college, I was in Korea and I was living with my aunt, and I hadn't really gone to Korea at all since I was. I think this is my first trip back, first trip to Korea since I had been three years old or something. And in Korea, there's a real emphasis on eating seasonally. And that's because there is such a strong, there's so many farmers in Korea and it's just way cheaper to eat seasonally. Um, and this was before, you know, local foods or whatever was such a big deal here in America. Mm-hmm. And so and it was the summer. So we ate lots of tomatoes. Um, we ate watermelon. As the summer, as it got later, we ate a lot of grapes. And it was interesting because my aunt kept being like, oh, this is in season, so we should eat it. Oh, this is in season, so we should eat it. And I was used to going to the grocery store and everything was effectively in season. You could yeah. just buy anything, right? And, but what I realized is everything in Korea was just so much more delicious. And it was <laughs> weird because, you know, I, I had I had just learned about Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage and trade and how much trade lifts all boats. But then, um, the sum, I guess, the in my gap year at, when I was back in Korea, um, and after um, finishing my undergraduate work, I read uh, Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle. And there she talks about some of the externalities of trade, which, you know, in econ, we we at the time were just like, oh, externalities. You can get rid of those with like a pollution tax or whatnot. And of course, we're not doing that. Um, and then she also talked about, which I thought was so interesting, was that a lot of the tomatoes that we have in the U.S. are bred for storage and transport, not for taste. And of mm. course, because it's it's the kind of product that you you buy and you don't know that it tastes bad until after you buy it. That those incentives totally make sense, and so I realized, oh, you know, I used to get in these arguments with my aunt in Korea, like think, saying, oh, we shouldn't have so creation having so much protection for its farmers. This doesn't make any sense. It it makes all the prices. This is why fruit in Korea is so expensive. But the fruit in Korea was also much more delicious, and so I I hadn't realized, oh, there can be these sort of downsides to trade, and we're not we're not like thinking about them at all, and so. That made me think. Oh, really? More people need to be working on environmental problems. So yeah. So my time in Korea led to my environmental passion. Along yeah. With the driver king solver.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, that's that's really interesting, and it's ah uh, it's not something that I had thought about before. Certainly. Um, how did you sort of find your way to environmental law? Like, what was there a moment where uh, that all kind of clicked, and and you decided to to set off down that path?
1: No, it was actually the opposite route. So essentially, I became interested in environmental issues. I was consuming as much sort of environmental media as I could. Mm -hmm. And I knew that's what I wanted. So, you know, a lot of people look at BCG as in consulting as sort of (laughs) one of my friends calls it a finishing school, which, you know, (laughs) it's you go there, but it's not always it's it's often not your sort of terminal career destination. Like you sort of know you're learning skills there and then you want to take those skills and apply them to whatever is going to be your real career, quote unquote. Um and so I I wanted to go to graduate school, but I didn't know what kind of graduate school. And so I went to and sat in on some law this law class and just was like, this is so much fun. I want to do this.
0: Gotcha. Well, uh, is there something that you would aspire to do beyond where you are now? Or are there areas that you think you may eventually, you know, want to explore that you haven't yet?
1: Yeah, I so I just started teaching in 2020 in fall of twenty twenty. Um so it's still really new to me and I love it. I love teaching. I love getting to do research that I'm interested in. And so I feel, I feel like I don't have the mental space now to think about like, well, what else do I want to do? Um, Fair I, enough. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I feel like is I just want to get better at all the things I'm doing. I want to be a better teacher. I want to be a better researcher. Um, I want to be a better college, like all the things. Um, so that's what I've been focusing on. I mean, I, I guess before I got into teaching, I kind of thought, you know, I have these sort of professor mentors who I look, to, look up to. and And what I think is, um, really unique about some people is they are able to do both um, either policy or litigation alongside their more academic work and I think like once I feel like I have more mastery of the basics I shouldn't call them the basics but like the core of being a professor I would love to be able to do that I think it enriches your work I think it enriches your teaching to be able to because at the end of the day if you're teaching at a law school you're teaching folks who are going to go off and be lawyers or um, litig litigators lawyers transactional lawyers um policymakers and so on and so you it's it's nice if you can bring more of that sort of real world experience to your classroom Um and it's nice if you can bring more of the real world into your research too to make it just more externally valid or ecologically valid so i, I guess in the future i would like to be able to add those components but right now i don't have that kind of mind space
0: yeah um that's interesting um How does it look to to teach law students and and what sort of what is your research? You know, what does that actual work uh, look like for for you?
1: Yeah. So uh, teaching law students is delightful. Um, They generally come to class very well prepared, interested in the material. So I've been teaching um, mostly environmental law topics. I'll also teach uh, property law this coming year. Uh, But yeah, I I love teaching law students. I think it's. you know, I, um, it's a lot of work. It's so much preparation, even though, you know, um, I've taught or TA'd, for example, environmental law. This is this was my fourth, third or fourth year. And so you would think by now it's old hat. But I feel like it's still, you know, when I'm in the teaching mode, every waking moment, I just want to be prepping and like figuring out a better way to either like a deeper understanding of the material myself or a better way to convey it or some activity that would make it more fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's, it's been like a real fun, like creative challenge. Um, In in terms of my research day to day, uh, it it can, it can be so different every day. So I do a lot of empirical work where I run studies. And so I could be designing a study one day and running it, paying participants and then analyzing the data. Um, Or I could be like today, I'm going to spend a lot of the day editing a paper. And so I'm just basically in word and like shifting paragraphs around, cutting, deleting, rewriting, killing all my darlings, as they say, (laughs) Um, or, you know, I could be drafting. So another thing I'll do today is draft a proposal for a study that will circulate and ask for comments on. And so that's just sort of laying out the motivation and drawing up the skeleton of here are the things we're going to, here's, here's how we would run this um, so that we can ask people to, to give us feedback. Um, So it it can really uh, be different day to day. One, one thing that's, Lovely about you, Chicago Law School is we value collaborative work, which is not true in all law schools. Um, and I love, love, love co-authoring papers because I, I just think the end result ends up much. It's more, it's more, it's a more fun process because you get to bounce ideas off colleagues and friends. But it's also, I think, because of that, it ends up you get a better result. So I'm really, really happy that that I can do that. So it's funny because a lot of people think academia is very monastic, um, yeah. but I, I actually don't think that's true. So, so many disciplines now are, you know, so many disciplines now value co-authorship. And so it becomes much more team-based than you would expect.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. So that's, uh, that's cool. It's, that's that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we've been asking people what are some fun and some not so fun parts of being a professor. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned some challenges, but, uh, yeah, is there anything, anything in part of the job that is just, uh, not that fun to you? You know, I hate right? grading. I'm sure
1: everybody says that. I'm sure everyone says they hate grading. It sucks. I mean, I just like I try. I try very hard to make it, you know, very objective. It's all blinded, and I have a point system, and I assign points to everything, and I do, you know. But it's unless it's a multiple choice test or like a math test where there's a right and wrong answer, it's inherently somewhat subjective, and so you just feel kind of crappy the whole time you're grading. So I hate grading.
0: Okay. Yeah. No. That's a that's a straightforward answer, and you are correct. You you are not the first person to to give that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine.
0: <laughs> well, uh okay. So you know, one important question is just uh what advice would you give uh to people who are considering entering this field?
1: Um I think it's really important to expand your interests and horizons and read and take classes very broadly because you have no idea how things will end up combining to like make sense to you. Um also just talk to lots of people, um, talk to you, talk to them about your ideas and don't be afraid. So some of my some of the, um, the projects I'm most interested in came out of really intense debates and discussions with people I look up to, um, who disagreed with me. And I wanted to sort of pinpoint, well, what's the source of that disagreement? Oh, that's an empirical question. Oh, we should just test that. Mm. Um, so I think just, um, keeping an open mind and being curious about the world is a great way to,
0: great way to start. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, um, yeah, I'm curious, like what, um, what is something that is going on in your field right now? Um, you know, what, what's going on uh, that, that is really inspiring you right now? Hmm.
1: It's funny. I um, So I just came off of maternity leave and then taught. And I feel like more than inspiration right now, I just have this. There's so many things I want to get done. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so my colleagues inspire me every day and like how much dedication they put towards teaching. So, for example... I'm teaching property law this winter. I'm really looking forward to it. And I've been talking to some and I'm reaching out to other colleagues who have taught it before and the level of care they put into their notes and lectures and the problem sets and everything that they put together for their students. That is definitely very inspiring and also quite daunting. Um, <laughs> my colleagues are also, you know, they're just so bright. And you know what I said about like people like you should read widely and be sort of broadly curious. I think that's very true of my faculty um, and so I go to these workshops, and the comments that people are able to make on areas of law and areas of. So, one thing about law school is researchers. Okay, so, you're all sort of researching law ish topics, legal topics, right? But you could be researching criminal law with an empirical background like Sonia Starr, or you could be researching constitutional law with history um, like Farah Peterson. Like, you could have so many different disciplines and so many different areas of law. And so you know, um, there's a professor at Stanford who calls law schools the last bastion of generalists. Hmm. Um, and it, what's very inspiring is to go to these workshops and see my colleagues able to really make, I mean, you know, not that I I can totally judge, but like what seemed to be brilliant comments and constructive suggestions for areas that seem wildly outside of their field and their area. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that's just like such a cool ideal to stri- strive towards, right? To be able to um, cross boundaries and and really like think broadly that way.
0: Yeah. Um. Going off of that, uh, I'm curious if you could you know talk a little bit more about how some of your experiences outside of the law or outside of the sort of environmental field um, have impacted the way that you approach questions about the environment. I mean, you talked about trade and and that awakening. Um.
1: Yeah. Of course. Um. So when I was at BCG, I was working with a bunch of companies and. It was really strange to me how everyone talks, everyone, you know, my friends who are mostly liberal-leaning, um, they would talk about corporations as these sort of megalith, nameless, faceless entities that were just evil. Um, and I was working with a lot of clients at these companies, and I thought they were generally well-meaning, good people who tried to, tried to do good things. And so one of my research projects is actually about corporate motivations and corporate pro-sociality And it kind of came about because, you know, on the one hand, you have um, this is a crazy oversimplification, but you have the sort of academic theorists in political science and economics who would say, oh, corporations are profit maximizing only. And they're just sort of these soulless machines. And then you also have the sort of some some folks on the political spectrum who would say corporations are necessarily evil. And I thought that was not true. From what I had seen from my work at BCG, particularly, you know, there were companies that uh, we advised who were privately held companies, and they would they would go they would you know this was before ESG and the rise of voluntary pro social corporate um, CSR was really a big thing, and they they would you know sort of quietly do these more expensive things to help the environment or or whatever. And so I thought, oh, this is there's there's a disconnect here, and I wonder if the disconnect is actually itself problematic, right? So. This is a lot of my work on expectations is how expectations can sort of um, bring about the expected behavior. So we know this is true with self-interest. Um, if you expect people to be self-interest, if you tell people this is you know, they're the famous studies on econ students or econ classes, if you tell people that self-interest is both normatively appropriate, that it is um, in fact, something you should be, you should be self-interested because that helps the market, the invisible hand of the market and descriptively accurate that most people are mostly self-interested they act in a more self-interested way Mm -hmm. um this is also uh, true about um growth mindset so this is a big deal now in a lot of a lot of schools you try to teach growth mindset where you say well if you think that you have if you have a fixed mindset if you think your intelligence level is fixed then if you do poorly on a math test you might think oh i must just not be good at math so then why try or if you do really well, then you might think, oh, I'm really smart at math, but now I'm scared of trying because I could disprove the fact that I'm smart. But if you have a growth mindset and you say, oh, you know, this is something intelligence can be um, earned in a way. You can work up and build your build your skills in math and students work harder both if they get a bad score or if they do a good score because um, they realize it's it's the product of effort, not necessarily just fixed ability. And so, in this way, if you expect that students can get better, or if you expect that students are going to be fixed, that that also tends to you um, get that behavior, right? And so, with in corporations, if we expect that corporations are only going to be evil, then if they do something good, then you might think, oh, they're just doing that. T-. They're either greenwashing, they're they're lying about it, or it's it's somehow going to be profit maximizing. So I don't want to reward them for that. I'm not going to go out of my way to buy their products or work for them or invest in them and then if they they do something bad you kind of think oh well of course they're gonna do something bad because they're just profit maximizing right and this is not to conflate profit maximizing with profits with evil profits are good in lots of ways i was an econ major i love profit lots of (laughs) profits are great you know but what i'm trying to get at is like maybe this sort of um disconnect between what I was seeing when I was advising clients at BCG and what both academics, some, some academics, um, and some of my liberal leaning friends were saying, like, maybe this is actually bad for us. Um, so that is sort of the basis for some of my projects.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. In- interesting. Uh, interesting, a bit of nuance there. Um, our, uh, our final question, um, is simply what is the most gratifying thing that you do in your job?
1: Oh, what is the most gratifying thing I do in my job? I mean, it has to be teaching, right? Like, it's, <laughs> um, like, I love doing my research, but with teaching and, you know, it's interesting. there's a there's a sort of embedded question here in what is gratifying for you. Right. 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 Um, and so, you know, I love doing my research and I find so much um, inspiration and joy in my research. But when you say the word gratifying, like having seeing students understand something that you think is kind of complex it's the best feeling in the world because then you feel like oh my gosh i did it i mean it's really because the students are super smart and they did all the work to get there but you get to tell yourself you did something amazing you got them to you got to help them get there right so yeah it has to be teaching
0: (laughs) all right well um thank you so much uh for sharing all of this with us um yeah it's it's been a pleasure thank you so much for joining us
1: yeah thank you so much it was great to great to talk to you steven
0: thank you professor hajin kim for your time today Course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the others. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. See you around.